Tillin, a Welsh word for Celtic harp. Welcome back to Tillin Tales. I'm your host, Sophia Matson. This is a podcast that combines my interests of folklore, psychology, probably neuroscience. Today we're going to talk about trees. So I really love to talk about plants and plant science and plant behavior and how it combines with human behavior. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about is trees and our relationship with trees and our relationship in the past with trees and how it has changed to where we are now. If you like this podcast, you can support me at patreon.com slash Tales. That's patreon.com slash T-E-L-Y-N-T-A-L-E-S. Or, you don't want to support me monetarily with the price of a cappuccino, you can simply share my podcast. That is a really good way to support independent podcasters. But if you would like to support me on Patreon, you will get a personalized letter from me in the mail for a thank you. I want to do quarterly Zoom sessions where I do a live podcast and we can all discuss over Zoom. And furthermore, you can have access to my writing. If I have a piece that I write, academic or creative, I'll post it on there and then I'll also keep you in the loop on my research and what you're more interested in so you could vote on that. All right. First, before I get into the episode, I want to clear something up. In my self-empathy episode, which I am just so happy to receive all the feedback from my self-empathy episode, so many of you reached out with your experience, and it was really heartwarming to me. Everybody told me such wonderful things, and I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I hope you know that. But I really want to know what you think about the synchronicity episode, too. So please let me know if you understood it, if you have an animal that you feel in sync with, or if you have any questions about it, please reach out. Back to the self-empathy, I need to clear something up. It turns out I said that my dad voted for Bush instead of Al Gore in 2000. Turns out I totally screwed that up in my child brain because I got confused with politician names that started with B. And what he had to do was he had to vote against Blagojevich, who was a mayor a mayor. A governor. mayor. He was a governor for Illinois back then. And he ran with the Democratic Party. So my family is a little more on the left-leaning side, I guess you could say. And so when Blagojevich was running, turns out this dude is not to be trusted whatsoever. He was convicted as a felon and removed from office. I'm sure there was a lot of news on that, you know, when he was running for his terms, and my dad had to vote against Blagojevich, so he had to not vote for the Democratic Party in that instance, and you shouldn't have to know my dad's voting habits, but I think that this is important to clear up that he did not vote for Bush, (laughs) but he also did not vote for Blagojevich. And it just reminded me, with this self-empathy episode, I talked about a family that I really learned to love until my empathy meter ran out and so I don't know if it totally was love but it was really difficult to keep that up and this family was very conservative 
and that's part of the reason why it was difficult. Her several members supported Donald Trump and even had a sign poster of him on their fridge. But with recent indictments, I have to say from the bottom of my heart that I am heartbroken because the families that put their heart and soul into the dream that he sold are probably just all twisted up right now with his indictments. And in my mind, his dreams were wicked and twisted for America. And I know that most people were just sticking to what they knew. And it might not seem like it, but I know firsthand that many people did not want to harm anybody. They just wanted nothing to do with change in this terrifying world at that terrifying time. And Trump wanted to bring them back to the white American family ideals that they were comfortable with. And I'm not saying any of this is good. But from what I understand, they thought because this vision to make America great again was straightforward enough in their mind, everyone must be lying about Trump's wrongdoings, right? That was the witch hunt. And I kid you not, and not to be funny because this is quite serious, but they thought Trump was a sign from God. And they prophesied that this was God's perfect will in their churches. And it sounds ridiculous to most of us, but this is where we must have empathy and we must understand It's their entire world falling apart before their eyes, watching him get indicted, watching him getting convicted. And I'm beyond relief, personally, that Trump is finally being indicted for countless crimes. But these lower middle class and poor Trump supporters particularly probably feel very low. And when folks are on the ground, I think it's time to gently offer them help to get back up, but let them rest and allow them to change. Because if you keep them in this box of evil Trump supporters, they're never going to have the opportunity to grow. So I feel for these people. I feel for their world crumbling before their eyes. Blagojevich was a Democrat and a terrible guy. And a lot of guys are terrible guys. We can't let them be in charge. And now we have this opportunity to use Trump's indictments as a mirror. We can think about our personal role in the division of this nation, and the aching and swelling of politics. We can see how it all turned out in the end. He never truly cared about the church. That was one thing that I feel like a lot of people voted for Trump was because sometimes people on the right need to stick to their their morals. And the thing about Trump was that he never actually cared about the church. And something that we all have in common is that we want someone who truly cares. Not necessarily about the church, but someone who is genuine about what they believe in. And someone who wants people to live happily and healthily. So now is everybody's time to highlight the gap and show yourself in authenticity. You never have to hide how upset Trump's term made you or the havoc of life during that time. And on the other hand, if you supported Trump, you never need to boast about how great it made you feel either. Everybody should just tell their stories, not with contempt in their heart and eyes, but share your personal feelings and ideas for betterment with the incredible empathy that I know that you carry and the ideas that you support. It's a perfect opportunity because next year we have the election again for the presidents. <laughs> we have elections all the time, so we it should, it's always an opportunity, but... Trump, he's going down like Blagojevich, except probably much harder since he was the former president after all. 
I want everybody to just show how strong they are and cool and calm. We don't need to rub it in like an idiot. We need to carry ourselves like kings and queens and rise above it. Okay, cool. Just had to say that. My weekend was interesting. I performed harp and vocals with my friend who was... I've known her for my whole life. Her name's Lainey Swafford. She was my drummer this weekend for a performance, and I debuted songs that I wrote. And I don't have them out yet on an album, but I will let you know as soon as I do. But they're all songs that kind of, they revolve around flowers, only because I I kind of needed, when I write poetry, I need like this um, metric. I need this rule, like, okay, I'm going to write about this certain thing and then see what happens, see how it makes me feel. So I wrote six songs about different flowers, kind of, or flower themes, and they're all kind of dark, <laughs> but um, they're cool, and they're harp, and it's my singing, and it's my poetry, and I'll have drums on them, and it's a fascinating accumulation of sounds. I hope you guys like it if you listen, but I'll have that out eventually this year, and I'll let you know when. But we performed it for the first time at Lakeshore State Park in Milwaukee, and it was just incredible. Um, Sarah Fierick put it all together, and I am thankful for her for giving me the opportunity, and it was my dad's birthday. So shout out to my dad for the second time in this podcast today. (laughs) All right, I want to talk about trees. So think about the time the times that you've been near trees or a specific tree. People love a big tree to meet by, to landmark when giving old-fashioned directions or to use as a base for a game of tag when you're a kid. You use a big tree to find shade and rest. Other smaller trees are fun to stand next to or maybe use for a good photo op or picking fruit. We love a grove, we love a forest. We love questioning the existence of trees and staring at that one giant standalone tree. And personally, I look at a tree and wonder if it feels or if it loves me back because I love trees. If it knows that I'm there, I wonder how many human events it has survived or if other humans have stared at that tree just like me. Another place that we experience the grandeur of trees is hiking, a more intentional experience of moving within wilderness and finding a deep appreciation of nature when you give yourself a moment to rest on the lookout, finally, after hiking all that way. How often do you walk slowly through a forest or mindfully around specific trees? I want you to bring yourself to a place of imagining, like the introduction of my synchronicity episode. And I'll probably do this a lot, because my brain is in a near constant state of imagination. So please enjoy my train of thought as I lead you through a common experience. If you can, close your eyes. A wind rush brushes through the branches of the tree canopy. The full-bodied gust is amply audible, and somehow it becomes trapped in the leaves 
and stagnantly floats down through the understory, preserving a cool ambience, like the titillating aftertaste of mint on raw gums. As the white noise subsides, the resonance of birds, insects, and tiny footsteps bounce from trunk to trunk, like sound traveling through a flute, finally absorbed in the soft wood and forest floor. Breath forms an unconscious and unquestionable pattern that pairs precisely with the soft ground. A thin lining of dew seeps into skin, akin to the rubbery sensation of leaves on a bouncy shrub. A mossy log entirely mirrors the surrounding ecosystem with a small section of the fallen tree. Round, wet mushroom caps camouflage themselves nearby. A peculiar aura coats their bodies with personality. Everything is still, yet in motion, beyond, yet within human senses. An underlying notion that this forest knows and has known. Then, metamorphosis, pupils and eardrums expanding, nasal passage clearing and lengthening, and an acute sensory awareness without the commotion of hypersensitivity. It's good to notice everything here. Wandering off the path, faint sounds of cars trigger the body back into its modern human form. And just like that feeling of Sunday dread, joining the human world feels stupid as hell. The world we created is a world of essential information. Neuroscience shows we work hard to ignore random irrelevant things. In doing so, I believe we have created a dreadfully boring human environment to cope with our rigorous schedules and regular daily stressors. Nothing like ever-moving and ever-changing nature. Many people find comfort in the plainness and the stillness that we create. An asphalt parking lot numbs the senses. Quickly, awareness of the microfauna and the tiny details in cracked oak tree bark goes dull. In the park's visitor center, there are infographics on native flora and fauna and little kitschy forest animal souvenirs, some by local artists, some by big companies that sell stuffed animals with plastic eyes but use proceeds for wildlife conservation. These things serve as a reminder of that particular forest land, but never do justice the way a souvenir of natural stone, bark, or leaf does to snap you back into the dreamy state of admiration for the mystery of life on Earth. Quote, You may melt your metals and cast them into the most beautiful molds you can. They will never excite me like the forms which this molten Earth flows out into. And not only it, but the institutions upon it are plastic like clay in the hands of the potter. End quote. That's an excerpt from Walden which is written by Henry David Thoreau. We try to appropriate nature, whether it's through architecture or stuffed animals, 
and we need to do this to tolerate the ridiculous human world. Next thing you know, some stupid noisy kids are nearby, complaining about wearing sunscreen or leaving their iPads in the car. The remaining nearby birds flee, except for the couple brave scavengers that wait for the loud kids' PB&Js to drop some crumbs on the pavement. So you start to get hungry, and you remember you have reservations for that farm-to-table restaurant. And the farm-to-table restaurant is a good option to fill the hungry, irritable void, right? It's delicious. And the toast is topped with fresh garden tomatoes, an egg, and this crunchy microgreen succulent called purslane, which sounds fancy, but then turns out it's a common weed. Many of us pull that from our gardens without knowing. Damn, for something so simple, why is it so expensive? Isn't French bread what poor people ate in the 1700s? But we don't have time or energy or knowledge to keep the chickens that made this egg or harvest purslane from our garden and then finally put it all on top of a baguette. And something about that annoying kid's cry from earlier that won't leave the eardrums. How those indoor plants over there are shoved into the corner, leaves crispy and yellowing at the edges, far away from a window. Something about how everything is off. The air conditioning acts similar to the way the forest captures the breeze, but it is unnaturally dry and awkwardly blows only on the left side of my face and shoulder. The plant must feel confused. What seasons does it experience? Does it know any difference between day and night besides the faint, filtered light that just barely touches its bottom leaf each day? The only thing preventing its life from complete sadness is the faint vibration of music and conversation. People boast about their plant parent status while their plant pets are more like high security prisoners with a life sentence. If they're lucky, the state allows the death penalty. Shriveling, tight roots gasp for air and thirst for water. The leaves just give up, unable to differentiate day from night, unable to form an efficient energy system that allows them to make most of daylight photosynthesis and nighttime water intake. Living, dead, zombies. And then you look up. Rusty metal beams and reclaimed wood attempt to reflect the organic materials of the forest. But each beam and plank has a strange, unnatural placement. Quote, you may melt your metals and cast them into the most beautiful molds you can. They will never excite me like the forms which this molten earth flows out into. And not only it, but the institutions upon it are plastic, like clay in the hands of the potter." End quote. Walden Henry David Thoreau. For most of our evolutionary history, we dwelled among the trees as the natural setting for our various human activities. Now, we only hike on vacations. We buy special shoes and gear for it, plan to see the remaining forests that have not been demolished, and then eat at a special restaurant later, and we call it hiking. It's wonderful and restoring, don't get me wrong, 
But why can't we feel this fulfilled on most days? What happened where we need to see raw wood only in industrial ascetic settings? Sitting dusty and dead among scrap metal and hanging pothos vines. These elements seem incomplete and angry. I'm actually so confused about this aesthetic for wedding photos. Like, you have your white dress, it's gorgeous, it's sparkly. There's so much lace everywhere, there's roses, and then you hang it in front of reclaimed wood and rusty metal beams to make the dress look even more extra? I don't even know. I don't mind the industrial aesthetic. It can be cool, definitely. There's so many places try to, you know, capture this naturalist. It's like naturalism in their setting, their restaurant, their store. They have all their house plants and it's all like this industrial aesthetic like everything's bare material and there's a house plant it just seems so odd to me and you can't receive the same health benefits from a bare wooden structure as you can in a forest and what we consider hiking in the u.s japanese do forest bathing translated from japanese as shinrin yoku this phrase trended briefly several years ago but just didn't make sense for most people. Many folks don't live within walking distance to a mass of trees. And if you do live near a forest, or more likely a park, you can reap benefits from a structured amount of time, or try to make it into an exercise, a hike, that doesn't really have to do with observing nature. At least for Americans, we tend to practice Shinrin-yoku around a schedule and most likely for a vacation excursion. I don't know if it's because they're retired, but old folks always look like they're ready for a walk. They're wearing their new balances, a utilitarian shirt and pants, and probably a scarf regardless of the weather. And they'll sit on those benches that are hardly ever occupied to stare at some trees. No headphones, no friends. And it makes me think that I just cannot wait to be old to have the privilege to sit on a bench and simply observe the scene? Not me, I have an agenda. What would I possibly get out of staring at some grass without any background music for an entire minute? Stopping and staring is not something we're allowed to do. Even walking my dogs growing up, letting them sniff around a patch of grass for 20 seconds allows them a great cognitive stimulation. They treat the world like a museum. But that's too painful for us. We don't want to stop and allow our brains to sync up with our environment. It's too scary, we might notice a little bug. Even scarier, I might realize that my entire life I've built is a stupid scam to keep me working for the big man while I'm lucky to retire just enough to give my grandkids a hundred bucks each Christmas till I die. Age is something young people have a hard time grasping. Old people and trees have unlocked the secret. They are not afraid to move slowly and sit in the same place for hours. Because the faster you move, the faster death is at your door. And you'll see elderly people do Tai Chi, typically in a park or natural setting. It looks like trees swaying in the wind. Sometimes it looks silly, like what could they possibly be getting out of that? Slowness is not usually a good thing in our culture. Some use it as a derogatory term to describe people with disabilities. We 
admire people who we perceive as quick-witted, depend on lightning speed technology, and are obsessed with fast cars. We want the things we fear to be slow, usually things we find disgusting. No one likes a quick insect. We want to age slowly, and we'll pay big money to ensure that. We fear death will come too quickly for ourselves and our loved ones. Imagine old people are super fast. I can. It's those scary movies where they make the one old lady appear through the mirror. I don't know if that happened in Hereditary. But she's crouched upside down on a ceiling. Yeah, it's Hereditary. (laughs) And when the protagonist looks into the old demon witch's eyes, she crawls across the ceiling towards the victim like a fast daddy long leg. And the things that are more acceptable, like old people, are when they're slow, like crawling insects, and dare I say people with disabilities. It's all easier to control, easier to keep exactly where we want them, easier to evade and avoid. Waiting for slow things like the line at the DMV is a contemporary torture method. But here's the thing. In any discipline that requires fine motor skill, whether it's exercise for sport or a musical instrument, the skill will strengthen if it's mastered slowly. If you can get every movement in slow motion, your muscles and brain gain heightened strength and coordination. It's like if you were taking notes, but the instructor is talking way too fast. You miss small but necessary information to help you master the subject. But if they give you time to write and then give you supplemental materials to practice on your own in your own time, you will have a fully developed idea of how this knowledge works. So slow is not a bad thing, it's just a different thing, and in many cases, a better thing. It seems silly, but trees, in my mind, are the ultimate philosophers of the slow method. So much so that we used to consider them as non-living. Let me explain. In 1509, the Libre de Sapiente, or Book of Wisdom, was published by Charles de Beauvels. And I'm pretty sure it's French, and I can't pronounce French for the life of me, so, you know, whatever. But this book contained the Pyramid of Living Things. And the Pyramid of Living Things is an illustration categorizing living and non-living things in ascending order. For instance, the first level that describes rocks and lies under every other category contains the word est, meaning nothing more than simple existence. So everything at the bottom, which includes rocks, is nothing more than simply existing. And then you have the next level, and there are plants on that level. And the phrase under that level is est et vivit, which signifies a simple existence with the attribute of life. And then on the third level is the phrase sentin, where there are animals who experience sensation. And finally at the top stands a man, and that phrase says intelligent, which demonstrates that only man has the capacity for intelligence. And since the Renaissance, people have classified the ecosystem this way. But then Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, and people were not ready to accept the idea that we were related directly to animals, which are not capable of thinking, right? Maybe maybe just capable of feeling. But even then, like 
you know, you think of old laboratory studies on animals just basically acting like they're not feeling anything we're doing to them. People were blindsided by the theory that we shared commonalities with species that we deemed to be lesser, lower, stupider than us. And more, this was not by chance, but through that direct lineage. And we still cannot grasp this. Human relation to other species was not even the point of Darwin's work. And a common assumption today surrounding his work is that humans are the most evolved organisms, which is an assumption that minimizes the Earth's timeline, as well as the vast amount of species that exist on this Earth right now, and have made it this far. No, Darwin emphasized that no organism is more or less evolved than the other, and that every organism is at the end of its own evolutionary branch. So each of these surviving, if not thriving, organisms is capable of making life-enhancing and generation-saving decisions. Now that seems like everything has some form of intelligence, right? If they're able to make decisions. And it's true, and this includes plants. And because we have categorized the world in such a way, a way that says animals feel but cannot think, or plants exist but do not feel, it's caused this massive natural disorder and disaster. Only in the past five years have we truly recognized that plants simply even just benefit our mental health, but we don't treat them as equals. Plants can move, eat, breathe, sleep, feel, talk, hear, see, and plan. I wonder if we had like a PETA organization for plants. <laughs> Protect plants, no plant abuse. And since botany became popular from colonization, and especially the English creating botanist collections, we've been keeping them hostage indoors, which is all good and fine and probably helps a lot of species reproduce and live good lives in a lot of cases. Until we decimate their native territory and destroy native plants that grow naturally in our environment. Why should we care? Because nothing here responds normally to the plants introduced from 5,000 miles away, and that affects us. We miss those natural rhythms, the synchronicity with our environment. Everything lacks a point, a connection. I mean, you can make a connection with anything, but you kind of know when something just belongs. And you begin to wonder, what are we doing here? Who are we? None of this makes sense. You cannot for the life of you find yourself fitting in or belonging. You begin to look for an answer and probably a quick answer, whether it's religion or relationships or drugs. Instead of developing a slow and fully realized sense of self, you latch on to someone or something else. And we have no personal or societal connection to our native plants and trees, so we smack off their branches and kick through the weeds, as if the weeks they spent growing aren't worth our working dollar. But those farm-to-table restaurants are worth my working dollar, and I want my mind blown from the four pieces of crispy, colorful lettuce on my plate that were just freshly chopped from the ground. Humans love to play pretend, me included. Lately, we have been hearing these points on sustainability and naturalism made by educated professionals for why we should spend time outside or plant a tree or shop secondhand or use less plastic, etc. These people are probably influenced by Henry David Thoreau, 
a man most famously known for writing a book called Walden, about living minimalistically in a cabin he built in the woods. Thoreau says that students should not play life or study it merely, while the community supports them at this expensive game, but earnestly live it from beginning to end. And people don't really like Henry David Thoreau because they think he's a hypocrite. But I think that those people make an ironic argument. Though Thoreau may have lived a few miles from his mom's house while he preaches about living off the land, I don't think we're any different. I mean, we go on road trips to national parks, but then we drive the Jeep. And vegans live in mini mansions with manicured lawns, green desert lawns. Earth Day Instagram posts are taken from places you hopped on a plane for. And consumerism with fast fashion and all these little plastic things that we can get all the time everywhere. And brand new cars and snack delivery services. We can't escape these things. People recycle, but then they don't rinse the recyclable. Can't even be recycled. Or they might not even have a city with a quality recycling plant. I don't think we can change our habits so easily. They stem from our childhood. And recent studies have shown that childhood spent in nature forms a future appreciation and respect more likely to support eco-conscious behaviors. But not everybody is lucky enough to have a nature-filled childhood that informs their adult behaviors, let alone get expensive hiking gear. And even still, if you can't afford your hiking gear, we live in a society Nature-loving behavior does not fit into the little human tasks we must upkeep, like a draining eight-hour job inside a stupid fluorescent light building, or even a nice, easy Gen Z workplace inside a fancy and beautiful building. Maybe for the latter, you get to take a walk around your neighborhood and see three trees and some seasonal flower beds for coffee or lunch break. But this issue is systemic, meaning The built environment is not flexible enough to cater to our social or economical needs or nature's needs. And I have a feeling that while walking within a forest improves our mood and focus, it also makes us less eager to get back to a ridiculous task that hardly matters in the grand scheme of things, right? You walk around that park and you have to put your headphones in because if you get too lost in this park and the beautifulness of it, It's like, do I really need to, like, make this a certain time? Can I take longer than 10 minutes here? No, I have to get back to my thing. So it's hard to even allow yourself to get out into nature because it kind of sucks you in, right? brings you back. I don't know. When I went to a friend's house to pregame before the bars the other week, I saw a massive tree was freshly cut to a stump right outside their house. And I thought of all the lives this enormous tree must have sheltered, probably lived a hundred years. And then we just chop it down, like none of it matters. Does that reflect how we feel about our own lives? When you travel to a national park, or even most destinations outside of the United States, you get this feeling that the land you walk is old and sacred. Or sometimes when I go to the East Coast, I feel like it's old here, but it's really just like old to the settlers. Feels like that with the architecture. But this land feels like the land has not changed when you go to these 
national parks or a lot of places outside the U.S. because that tree over there still has existed for a thousand years. And this land has been untouched. It hasn't been colonized. Now, a whole lot of land has been colonized. Pretty much most of the land. I get that. Which really affects the environment and how old it feels. But I want to share some pushback against eco-terrorism that influenced the world to hug some trees. So, 280 years ago, one woman named Amrita Devi ran to hug a sacred tree in the Bishnoi community of India to prevent it from being cut down. So the king, he wanted to build a new palace, and so he told soldiers to go offer Amrita Devi a bribe so they can cut down these trees. But she was insulted. She refused. And she sacrificed her life for the tree. And upon witnessing Amrita's murder, her daughters ran to hug more trees of the forest. And the massacre of 363 non-violent Bishnoi people hugging trees? It inspired the Chipko movement of India in the 1970s, where Chipko means to hug. So the Chipko movement was in response to the deforestation, um, and I'm about to pronounce a region. And if you speak the language, I'm sorry if I totally butcher this. But the Chipko movement was in response to the deforestation of the Garwal Himalayan region of Uttarakhand. And hundreds of people in the community, which were mostly women, held hands and locked themselves around these trees. And this movement proved successful eventually. They passed a 15-year logging ban, finally by 1980, so they could regrow the forest. In that very region in 1968, the Beatles visited, and I think that's why the Chipko movement and hugging trees made its way back to the West. So the Beatles visited this region and they wrote the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, which is a song, and it mocks this average Englishman visiting the retreat at the same time they did, and he ended up going on this little adventure in the woods and shot a tiger dead because he felt threatened. And they make fun of him in that because it's like, that tiger lived here, and you're not even from here, dude. But the hippie movement of the West began in the mid-1960s, and it was an era of environmental and social activism, so... The Beatles visiting the Garwal region in 1968 kind of put more attention on this area, right? And so when the Chipko movement happened and everybody was hugging trees in India, it made its way back. And the nonviolent tree-hugging protests of the Himalayas in 1970 gained global recognition. But it was not only about environmental conservation, it was about the rights of poor communities to their local resources. These communities recognize trees as a basic source of survival. And that's an ancient concept, far from what Westerners understand about trees today. And I think that's why learning about tree huggers in my childhood was unfortunately too lighthearted. The idea of human life being equated to a tree's life was a very difficult concept to translate to the West. The holistic ecological reason to hug trees, not just to show love, but to preserve the entire natural and social ecosystem, does not translate to a newly constructed suburb. And so a lot of these tree-hugging, wildflower, natural remedy ideas seem very airy-fairy to us. Doesn't make sense. Why would we hug a tree? For fun? The hippie movement is largely comical. But we need to start taking it seriously. 
I hate when grounded and fascinating topics get painted over with groovy flowers and clouds and cannabis leaves, especially when the concept comes from a non-Western culture. This is where structural racism comes into play, I think. If you still have a hard time understanding how racism influences our Western society, here is a prime example. People in India recognize a tree as a key to keeping their ecosystem and way of life in balance. And then hippies in America are inspired and upset, you know, by the deforestation and they're inspired by the Chipko movement. But then all the normal folks who aren't paying attention think the hippies smoke too much weed and they dress too weird. And so they don't possibly, they can't even possibly care about what the hippies have to say. So it turns into this funny, groovy little hippie idea to hug trees over here. And then school children like me in the 2000s learn about tree huggers in a very improper way. And it's from like this poorly written book or an uninformed elementary school teacher who fails to demonstrate the gravity of the issue. It's not the teacher's fault necessarily, but it's the way that information travels from around the world and the cultural context that we need for that. And then you add time to that equation. And then kids like me are like, LOL, tree hugging. And only some people are lucky enough to share a personal relationship with a tree. And I think that's where you can begin to understand why trees are necessary and important to these communities. Humphrey was the name of the apple tree growing up in the otherwise sparse park at my best friend's apartment complex. I lived across the river and back 40 fields in the rich white people neighborhood, which is what my friends called it in the other neighborhood. And I hated that name, but I didn't really understand what was going on. My friend was Mexican and her family was very inspirational. I um, studied Spanish in college to try to catch up, you know, but I grew up around them. And I have to say that no cultural education compares to the close exchange of cultural norms that my friend and I had. And one thing in particular created a space for individuality and shared interests, and that was Humphrey, the apple tree. After we had this rite of passage of figuring out how to climb up the really girthy wide trunk, we picked branches. There were like these specific large branches, and so my friend picked her branch first, and that was like her room that she got to decorate. And then I picked my branch, and then we had like the last big branch for our kitchen area, where we like kept lemonade and little snacks. And we each collected items throughout our daily adventures to decorate our tree and make it our own. We loved Humphrey. We spent an entire day in that tree, just sitting up there, talking, whatever. And one day we came to our tree and it was cut down due to complaints about children climbing it. So reduced to just a couple branches from the many fruit-laden branches, we were utterly heartbroken. I knew it was about us too because they cut the specific branches that we would climb on, you know, our rooms, and they threw all of our stuff away. marched up to the tree trimmers, and we demanded our collected items. We demanded answers and justice. We were about nine years old. But they were just doing their job, and they had no idea where anything was. And we felt discouraged. 
and we wanted to write a letter to the mayor, but we gave up. And I think it's because we were just disappointed and exhausted at that point. But now you walk by and Humphrey is just a ghost. Not even a stump was preserved. Of course they took down a tree in an apartment complex that hardly had a park to begin with. People think, what's the hurt of cutting down one tree? Especially if the area is practically deserted. On the other hand, what's the hurt of cutting down one tree, especially when there's a nature trail down the road? Doesn't matter. People just cut down trees. But even if the nature trail's down the road, I wonder, must these natural settings be a destination separate from our homes? Long ago, activities in nature used to be a completely integrated part of human life. For humans, likely could not imagine a world of concrete and stepping outside always meant stepping into the wilderness. Wilderness was the basis for religion. It was the basis for everything that we understood about the world. And somehow, even without the intricate science of how trees are important for the ecosystem and mental health, communities understood the depth and importance by creating folklore about trees. And interestingly enough, a lot of cultures chose a tree to represent life and knowledge and it looks hardly different from society to society there are minor differences and i'm going to go over them so there's yggdrasil which is a sacred ash tree of norse mythology and that sheltered all nine realms of norse mythology with each different realm lying in a different section of the tree so they used the tree kind of like a map for all of the different like space-time continuums that they believed in, right? So then there's the sky-high tree, also known as the world tree. It's from Hungarian folk mythology and a lot of, you know, Eastern European mythology. But it's so high that you cannot see the top, and many native tales are about climbing the great tree and discovering the hidden world that lies above. Trees kind of have this information that is just barely inaccessible to us. And then there's ancient Vedic religion, which is like ancient Indian religion. And Hindus are ancient Hindu religion. Someone let me know how to say that. But Hindus recognize trees hold the origin of life. Every species has an associated god. And so they have the banyan tree, which is considered the tree of life in the sense of fertility. But then they have the peepal tree, which is also known as the sacred fig, or the scientific name Ficus religiosa. And that's the most worshipped tree of India. So picture a tree with a wide canopy of heart-shaped leaves that make a soothing noise in the wind. And the trunk seems like it's composed of many trunks sometimes with massive exposed roots. I think of Florida when I think of, or like the South. When you go more South, you see these types of trees with the, all these huge exposed roots, right? And the people tree is represented by not one, but three different Hindu deities. And they make up the Trimurti, which is like the trifecta of gods that help create the universe. So there's Brahma, the creator god that lives in people's roots, 
There's Vishnu, the god of preservation and enlightenment, which lives in the trunk. And then Shiva, the destroyer god, that resides in the leaves. And three, if you've listened to my other podcast of synchronicity, you know is an outstanding number. It shows up in a ton of religions. There's not any of this black and white or one or the other. And I like that. I think that's interesting. I'm getting tired of black and white. There's so much more to life, you know? But anyways, the peepal tree has a ton of health benefits. It's insane. This tree, they call it the tree of life. And I think that's very fitting because it photosynthesizes during the day and night, which means it produces oxygen around the clock 24-7, which a lot of plants can do. But it's interesting because the epiphytes, which are plant species that grow on trees instead of in the soil, like certain ferns and orchids, will grow on this tree that already produces 24-hour oxygen, and orchids also release oxygen for 24 hours. So it's like this fresh air machine extravaganza. And then the people's heart-shaped leaves can be used to treat a multitude of conditions like asthma or any kind of aching around your head, (laughs) ear tooth headaches, gastrointestinal issues, jaundice and scabies. And if that's not enough, you can look to the bark. You can use it as medicine for paralysis, gonorrhea, parasites, diabetes, and some doctors are finding the extract of the bark helps acetylcholine levels, which is essential for learning and memory processes. So they might use that to help people with Alzheimer's disease. But the peepal tree is not just sacred to the Hindu religion, but Buddhism too. So it's said that Buddha receives his enlightenment from meditating beneath this tree. And they don't call it the peepal tree, they call it the Bodhi tree. And then there's the Mahabodhi temple, which is the site of Buddha's enlightenment. And they actually have propagated an ancestor from the original Bodhi Buddha tree that was propagated around the 3rd century BCE, and it remains there to this day. So you can visit the OG Bodhi tree at the Mahabodhi temple, which is probably going to be on my bucket list now. But I just want to pause. Somehow, this tree has endless health benefits for humans and other creatures. And somehow, people from way back then knew that. They knew that. They were so in sync with nature that they just knew this tree was the spot. Buddha was like, I'm going to sit beneath that tree. And then received enlightenment. And I think what enlightenment means is just like this knowledge is such an interesting word it's like knowing when you just know when you can feel it it's more of a feeling of how everything works and how everything functions and you can just kind of understand when something is right when something is love you know when something is love when something's live laugh love it's like it creates life it supports life and this tree took up enough space for three hindu gods and it was the source of knowledge for buddha so That's incredible. And then you've got the oak tree. Give it up for the oak tree. My grandma's obsessed with oak trees, and so is my mom, and so am I. For great reason. They are also the ultimate life givers, like the Bodhi tree of the north. And the ancient Celtic religion, which I love to look at because I'm, you know, 12.5% Irish, it shares a number of beliefs with ancient Vedic religion that Hinduism stems from. 
and so it considers the oak tree to be the most venerable of Irish trees. In fact, ancient Irish laws ranked trees according to their nobility, so the oak, ash, and yew trees were the most noble. And I read in this book called Listen to the Land Speak, highly recommend. It's from an Irish writer and documentary maker named Montgun Megan, and I really recommend it if you like Irish folklore and the cross-discipline of folklore and ecological preservation. So cool. I mean, you, you know a lot about Ireland from it, but you get this whole understanding of how you can apply it to the United States, for example. But one of his chapters is on sacred trees of Ireland. According to Roman historians from the first century AD, which we would look to them to kind of understand about other cultures because they were writing things down, they said that people who spoke Celtic languages worshipped at groves of trees. And so Monk and Megan, the documentary maker, book writer guy that wrote Listen to the Land Speak, he draws on this connection of Irish churches being built on sacred tree grove lands. So when Christianity came to Ireland, they took the ancient sites of worship and then they would build their new church on it because it's a holy land, right? And he expands on the cathedrals resembling a grove of trees. Pillars shoot straight up like sturdy tree trunks and then connect with these arches that create high vaulted ceilings like a forest canopy. And many pagan sites of worship were adapted for early Christian settlements. Unfortunately, Ireland was colonized like a lot of other places, but it led to a massive deforestation, which is pretty much how everybody gets deforestation, right? And where there are now vast Irish plains, there used to be ancient tree groves. Ireland has a rainforest climate. And there were not just oak tree groves, but birch, hazel, yew, hawthorn, and holly trees. And while not considered particularly noble, the hazel tree, which is more like a bush tree, you know, one of those bush trees, is the most magical and it played a major role in like the creation story of rivers and like the get-go of the whole ecological system, the whole natural system. So I want to change his thinking of creation stories too. We learn about creation stories and they're cute and all, thinking about where people think things came from, but there's a function to them. So whenever you hear characters in a creation story, you can consider them as key components of that region's functioning ecosystem and why things are the way they are. And that's why they were magical and sacred. Because they were important for everything to survive. You see, when you destroyed an Irish tribe's tree, which is called a bile, you may as well have killed the king. Because if you destroy the tribe's tree, it kills the entire community. You would be wishing death upon not just the people, but the animals and the fertility of the land. So they had these five specific sacred trees in Ireland, which I'm not going to get into, but the one planted in the center of Ireland was particularly the tree to connect the realms of above and below, just like Yggdrasil and the sky high and the Bodhi tree. They connected these realms. And I live in the United States where there are a ton of native tribes and nations covering the vast land of North America than I have ever learned about in school or heard of otherwise. 
And because trees are this physical embodiment of connection with the land, you know, I feel like we learned about Native Americans, like as a white person, we learned about Native American culture, like they have this connection with the land. And it's interesting because trees literally are connected to the land and Native peoples have been recognizing trees as kindred spirits that hold ancient knowledge. They've been seeing them kind of like people that hold knowledge. A 500-year-old sacred oak tree in the Oli Valley of Pennsylvania is still honored today by the Lenape tribe. And then you go further south in the Andes region, and the Incas, who were incredibly innovative, created agroforestry. And they also recognized the important connection of sky and earth that the trees were responsible for, where they had a certain term called waka for the special trees, but then other other trees used in agroforestry were strategically placed within crops to maintain soil fertility, which is very impressive considering we don't really do that. I, I come from like a agriculture town and I have not seen any trees near crops, like no trees near crops, but the durability of their agricultural system has lasted hundreds of years and they still use them to this day. So it's very impressive. And we tend to communicate our spiritual encounters with trees through religion. I think that way of communicating our encounters with trees has positive and negative implications because first, we associate trees with eternal life and knowledge, but then as soon as we discount religion, we discount nature's power. So eventually, as religions moved away from naturalistic beliefs associated with their gods, we slowly adapted to a more anthropocentric point of view, which means human-centered point of view, that made more sense for the future direction of cultures forming cities and using inventions that required natural resources. And the printing press was revolutionary, not only because it encouraged widespread global literacy, but because it vastly spread one religion in particular, Christianity. In the Old Testament, the tree of knowledge is the main tree we pay attention to. And what happened? It produced the forbidden fruit, sinful nature, a fruit that would banish humans to the one place they wanted to avoid, the wilderness. And men made it their mission to spread Christianity around the world, which was convenient because flora differs per region. You know, one species of tree cannot be chosen as a spiritual symbol if you want to convert people across the world, so many people just adapted according to their region's sacred tree. And pomegranate trees are considered indigenous to Iran, the home of one of the oldest monotheistic organized religions, which is called Zoroastrianism. This means they held one god with ultimate power, and that was Ahura Mazda, god of the sky and ultimate creator. But not only that, Zoroastrianism expressed free will, also the idea of a messiah, judgment after death, and the duality of good and evil that creates heaven and hell, and angels and demons, which were old Indo-Iranian gods that we kind of categorized into celebrated and condemned. All these themes are thought to have influenced Greek mythology, Judaism, and later Christianity. 
and the pomegranate was used for wedding rituals to ensure healthy children, and it was the tree of heaven, so it symbolized eternal life. Persian lore has it that the hero and prince Esfandiar ate the pomegranate to be invincible in battle to defend Zoroastrianism's prophet who spread the religion. So pomegranates traveled to be cultivated in many of the surrounding countries, and they became linked with Greek culture. In Greek mythology, you think of Persephone who ate the pomegranate, right? She was abducted by Hades, who convinces her to eat a few pomegranate seeds, and then secures their marriage, but it condemns her to the underworld. So her mom got super mad and unleashed winter. And the pomegranate in this sense represents the unbreakable tie of marriage, death, rebirth, and the cycle of seasons, as Demeter brings fruit-bearing trees back when Persephone returns in the spring and summer. And when the fruit ripens in the fall to be eaten once again, Persephone goes back into the underworld. The pomegranate is not just known to be red, but golden. And so golden poems, which were likely pomegranates, were believed to make up the goddess Hera's garden of immortality. Hera was the wife of Zeus in Greek mythology. And a fruit of immortality, you say? That sounds like the apple of the Garden of Eden, right? The fruit of knowledge, all-knowing. Well, a poem is a fruit with a central core. So the golden poems are contested as golden apples. And somehow, somewhere, the pomegranate and the apple got kind of mixed up. And there's this really interesting way of showing this because in Sicily, there was a big pomegranate trade. And when Catholicism started taking place in Sicily and Italy in general, Italians had this, like it was the Romans, right? So it was Greco-Roman mythology, and they had the same gods. And then Christianity came about, and in Catholicism they have saints, right? And so they would take the saint and find which one matches the god that you used to worship. And so in a sanctuary known as a temple for Hera, they replaced her statue with a statue of the Virgin Mary. And the Virgin Mary is holding a pomegranate in the same iconic pose of Hera. And so she kind of assumes the same role of Hera, this representation of sacred fertility and motherhood that the pomegranate has been known for. This is a common thing to do in many cultures when adapting to Christianity, right? But then what about the apple that Eden got stuck with? Like, Hera's garden of poems being contested as both apples and pomegranates, the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge is contested as an apple or pomegranate. And somehow, Mary got stuck with the pomegranate while Eden got stuck with the apple. And it's like, I know that this is just really just one statue of Mary that holds this pomegranate that I know of. But Mary did all the right things, and she was a virgin, and she listened to God, and she was rewarded with the gift of a child, so she can represent the benefits of the fruit without shame. She never picked the fruit, it just bopped her upside the head and got her pregnant. But Eve sought after the fruit, and Adam was just blamed for blissful ignorance. But God said, Eve, since you gave into the snake and told Adam to partake in this scrumptious, juicy act of knowledge, you will have the children and face the wrath of your woman body. 
And Adam, you will only know war from the mangy children that come from Eve's sinful body and will need to face the untamed and untended wilderness with this naughty woman. So I'm kicking you both out of the garden. Good luck. We're obsessed with taming the earth and agriculture and creating clean gardens devoid of things like snakes. And fools today actually search for the site of the Garden of Eden without realizing it was probably a perfect ecological system of plants and animals that had everything they needed from the land that God provided. And now, instead of focusing on this tree that holds eternal life and knowledge, we think of the evil that it brought upon the earth. Pomegranates have been in high demand, still are, and we have to tear down native habitats to grow them in warm regions of the United States and Chile to feed our obsession. They trended all around the ancient world, like the boba tea of today's globalized food trends, with religion. And even early Roman scholars knew that every part, including the skin, was medicinal for nearly every part of the body. While they continue to be trendy today, we just blindly drink the pomegranate juice and boast of its heart-healthy qualities we read on the label. But any other medicinal qualities of the tree, or the fruit, are formed in a chemistry lab, distributed with plastic bottles and given inaccessible names. Most of us, <laughs> there are these pictures online where it's like, oh, I never knew that cherries grew on trees, and it's like a picture of a cherry tree. It's like the same thing, like, we don't think about where our fruit comes from. We don't know if it comes from the tree, or a bush, or underground. We have no idea. Maybe some of us thank God for providing this forbidden fruit, but I'm starting to understand why it's so forbidden. It's not from here. It's unsustainable. It's a selfish, life-giving practice where you think you're giving yourself all this health, but it destroys more lives in return. It's Bungalow Bill who destroyed the tiger and unknowingly threw off the entire ecosystem to save himself. And I wonder, too, if the way we are neurologically captivated by the shape and color of fruit, standing out from more neutral leaves and branches, has an effect. Have the added complexities of urban society and technological development distracted us from the holistic perspective? We only have time to focus on what stands out, what tastes yummy, what gives us great satisfaction in the least amount of time. The fruit's alluring physical quality distracts from the tree, the life giver, the creator. It correlates directly to the distraction from God. He warned us about the fruit and we fetishized the fruit leaving the importance of the entire tree behind. It is the exact behavior that ruins sustainability. And the funny thing about our harvesting methods is that we harvest a lot of fruit underripe, so by the time it reaches our kitchen table, it can be ready to eat. But apple trees, for instance, drop their apples when they are ripe. And I wonder what would have happened if Eve waited for the fruit to fall instead of picking it from the tree? No one wants the apple on the ground. It might have imperfections or worse. Someone else has gotten into it first. And we would never put ourselves in a competition with a lesser species, so 
We pick it straight off the tree, like it was made only for us. And we control where it grows. And we control what animals and insects get access to our food. And God said, you want to be the big boss? Good luck. It's fascinating that the Judeo-Christian God chose a tree to represent knowledge. Monotheistic Abrahamic religions really beat around the bush when it comes to spiritual significance of plants, I think. And I say this because I read um, a book called Brilliant Green, uh, The Surprising History and Science of Plant Intelligence. And it's by Stefano Mancuso and Alessandro Viola. And they bring up this point about monotheistic Abrahamic religion. So Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, right? And in Islam, you're not allowed to make any art that represents Allah or any living thing because you might misrepresent God, Allah. In return, because every living thing is a reflection of Allah, you cannot represent a living thing either. But all of the art is plants and flowers. So that's the point they make. And it's like, we totally ignore how alive plants are and how important they are. And it's crazy that it's in all of this art and it doesn't count as a representation of Allah. And then there's the Jewish celebration, I believe called Tu Bishvat. And it's the celebration of trees and their birthday. Um, from what I remember, I don't have my book open. I'm really speaking from my knowledge right now. Um, but I'm going to have a guest on soon that's going to expand a little more on this, I think, for me. And, um, you know, it's overall, you shouldn't destroy trees and everything like that. And it's all good and fine, you know? We love trees. We love plants. Don't destroy the earth. But we don't think about them as equal. We cannot possibly have an idea that plants are functioning, living, breathing, thinking things. And so that's kind of where it got mixed up with monotheistic Abrahamic religions compared to the ancient religions, right? And trees carry all this symbolism and folklore and mythology, but we cannot minimize it to something of magic and people talk from way back when, when people were crazy. They were the reason every culture thrived and had this innate knowledge of how everything on land worked together. They were inspiration for entire belief systems and clearly had a major impact on behavior, right? So I think if we create a successful new structure for how we can live, beginning in neighborhoods and schools that we build, it may impact human behavior in the future. Most likely, trees are not only the answer for restoring the ecosystem and taking in carbon dioxide because that's the only thing we care about when it comes to trees is how much carbon dioxide they can hold. Trees are the answer for a multitude of our needs, defensible space, noise reduction, tranquility, cognitive sharpness, and attention to memory, and mindfulness, creativity, food and water, and they give us a sense of place. You know where you are because of the species of plants that are around you. And many people prefer to put up fences surrounding their homes. So I'm going to talk about defensible space. And cities do the same for parks. They put up fences around parks. We put up fences around our garden. 
This isn't just a straightforward concept of keeping people out, you guys. It's entirely possible for other people or animals to hop or go around these barriers. So why do we insist? In psychology, having borders to create a defensible space puts our mind at ease, even when the border doesn't completely prevent someone from entering. Trees give shelter and shrubs create natural barriers, and we have the ability to create these illusions of control, you know, feeling safe, while harnessing every other benefit from trees. Fences used to be cool. You see old fences and they're like beautifully designed. There's iron gates around those really nice big old houses, but we don't make fences like that anymore. So we need to start thinking, what are we really doing here? Noise reduction is another quality trees hold that is surprisingly important because children living in noisy environments perform worse on cognitive tasks than those living in quiet environments, even when they travel to complete the tests in a quiet environment. Constant noise negatively impacts our mood, energy, and stress levels. Even just living by an airport makes a difference. These are the kinds of things that a lot of neuroscientists and environmental psychologists examine. There's this other aspect of plants that we really need to work on to understand, but it's that we fail to comprehend they are indeed social beings. Trees, plants, they recognize each other and differentiate between kin and outsiders. They hold individual character traits and communicate with both plants and animals through chemical signaling. And the part that I love about trees is that they look exactly like neurons, which are brain cells that make every single thing that we do possible. So if you look up a picture of a neuron, you're gonna see it looks like a tree with roots and branches. You can think of the tree's roots like the dendrite, which takes in all of the information, and then the trunk like the axon, covered in a protective layer called the myelin sheath that acts like bark. And finally, ending in the synaptic terminal, where the leaves of trees, just like the terminal, emit chemicals for communication to other cells. Trees and the mycelium that extend the underground communication network collectively form the Earth's brain, the Earth's control center. Without trees and plants in general, the Earth will go brain dead. It will not function and we are quickly decimating the Earth's brain cells. But the ancient humans everywhere knew this already. It's crazy because a plant may understand more languages than the average human. In fact, plants demonstrate swarm intelligence like ant colonies. Plants are placed at the bottom of the so-called food chain. Yet, we depend on them for all aspects of our life. If the world bursts into flames or drowns, plants will survive. They were the beginning. They are the end. And they are the new beginning for the future. Trees mark our territories. They give and give and give. We find our identity in trees. We used to, at least. And now, we don't really know how to interact with a tree. And the worldwide conclusion that trees are sources of heaven and earth connection, enlightenment and life, 
is a branch of peace between nations. And because they are almost these otherworldly humans, these living spirits that speak and respond to us, a representation of connectivity, they stand strong as peacemakers. Cutting a tree down is killing a collective soul of long history, wisdom, and knowledge. That vile, that sacred tree to your community. Trees are as wise as an elder and as plastic as a child. And when I say plastic, I don't mean Barbie, I mean moldable. They just keep growing, especially when you nourish it with attention and care. And so I want you to find a tree in your neighborhood or at your favorite park. And I want you to think about how it makes you feel and what its purpose is. I want you to notice it. What type of tree is it? Do you know what type of tree it is? I want to open up this dialogue where people are comfortable talking about trees in a non-scientific way. We can talk about trees like they deserve our attention, like they make us feel something, like we want to say something to a tree and like the tree is talking to us, because it is. I want you to find what trees make you feel certain ways compared to others. We really only know from the latest science that, you know, trees make us feel good and reduce our stress levels and they're good for us. But we don't have a differentiation between trees like folklore did. I want to know more about that. I want people to start talking again about the trees because cultures found their entire identity within trees. And I think, especially nowadays, we're so confused and lost, and identity is such a huge topic. You have to know what your identity is, and you have to be ready to present it to all of your peers in class or at work. Whatever that means, man, whatever it means to you, cool. But we used to have a collective identity. We used to at least maybe be able to identify with like a certain tree. <laughs> What if we include that in our, like, identity introductions? Like, Sophia Madsen, she, her, hazel tree. That's me. Yeah, um, I, you, I know. I know you guys. You're like, Sophia, I've always been like this. My friends have been like, what the hell, Sophia, my whole life. But this was normal for a long time in history. And I blame colonization. <laughs> Single-handedly. Anyways. I really appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this episode, you can find me on Patreon, like I said, patreon.com slash Tales, patreon.com slash T-E-L-Y-N-T-A-L-E-S. Thank you to my patrons. You were wonderful. And uh, if you are considering being a patron, I will send you a personalized letter. Sorry, you guys who are patrons right now. I still have to do that. I had a busy weekend, but I will get that done. If you are not a patron, though, that's totally fine. I love that you're just a listener. Please keep listening and tell your friends about my podcast. Tell your family about it if you think this episode's interesting. Thank you for tuning in. You guys have a beautiful week. Okay, bye.